You're listening to Inside North Central Massachusetts, powered by the North Central Massachusetts Chamber of Commerce. You're listening to the Inside North Central Massachusetts podcast election series. Joining us to talk about her campaign for lieutenant governor in the Democratic primary coming up on September 6th before November's general election, we have Representative Dr. Tammy Gouveia. Representative Dr. Gouveia is a representative for the 14th Middlesex District and currently resides in Act. Prior to serving as a state rep, she had a 25-year career as a social worker that included time working at the Greater Lawrence Community Health Center, where she led her advocacy efforts to protect children from exposure to environmental toxins, founded and chaired the Lowell Roundtable on Substance Abuse Prevention, and also served as director of Tobacco-Free Mass. During the pandemic, Rep. Gouveia earned her Doctorate of Public Health. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Travis. Really appreciate it. And thank you for the introduction. You can certainly call me Tammy throughout this uh, interview, but I appreciate the kind introduction. No problem. So Tammy, you earned your doctorate. Uh, you're staying busy. Now I want to know what makes you want to run for lieutenant governor? Yeah, you know, I believe that we deserve leaders in the corner office who are putting our health, well-being, and dignity at the center of the ways that we're making decisions. And far too often, both as a single parent, I have seen the ways that the systems do not um, really live up to what the promise is for helping working families. And I definitely see it on the other side as a state representative helping my constituents even before the pandemic, but really, you know, so many things were ac- exacerbated uh, during the pandemic in terms of like access to mass health and, um, you know, SNAP benefits and unemployment and the list kind of goes on from there. So can you speak a little bit more about your background as a state rep? Um, I know you served before the pandemic started. Can you tell us a little bit how that has prepped you for this run for lieutenant governor and how your career as a social worker has prepped you as well? Yeah, definitely. So I grew up in the city of Lowell just as a starting point, and that's what really inspired me to want to go into public service. It's why I became a public health social worker, just seeing, um, you know, the impacts of intergenerational poverty and uh, racism and xenophobia on so many of my classmates and friends. So even just my experiences growing up in a very diverse gateway city, I think, prepare me in many ways. And that has really lived through um, throughout my career as a public health social worker and a state representative. It's funny, when I was first running for, for state rep a couple of years ago, you know, folks would ask me, why do you want to leave social work? Why do you want to leave public health uh, to go into the legislature? And I really see it as a place where I do my public health work is is serving in a policy uh, position, whether it's in the legislature or, you know, hopefully as the next lieutenant governor, um, really, because every policy we take up uh, has an impact on our health and our well-being, uh, whether you're talking about jobs or transportation or education access. Um, you know, there are so many things that we take up as policymakers that that impact the lives of residents every single day. So is it safe to say that if you are elected as lieutenant governor, that your number one priority is public health? Yeah, public health and mental health are huge. And, you know, I've been in this race since June. I was the first to get out um, of the gate and really have been crisscrossing the state. Mental health, climate change, those come up repeatedly. And the other big uh, focal point also is housing. And I believe that housing should not only be affordable and uh, but it should also be humane. And we have a really old housing stock here in Massachusetts and we're not always keeping up with uh, the repairs and the maintenance uh, that the housing really needs in order to be uh, a place that is uh, dignified and humane for working families to live in. And you mentioned the pandemic exacerbating some different issues um, for your constituents and for the entire Commonwealth. 
How well do you feel the current administration is handling the pandemic? And what do you think needs to be done differently if you're elected? I think that we made a really, the current administration made a really big mistake in privatizing the response to the pandemic. Uh, You know, shuffling people to mass vaccination sites, particularly our elders and people with disabilities was a big mistake. It slowed us down and getting uh, shots in people's arms who really needed them. It caused a lot of frustration and confusion. I fielded, you know, so many phone calls um, from residents, you know, in their 70s and 80s who were truly panicking about how they were going to get um, access to the vaccine. And that has really carried through with the privatized response that is with, you know, the the run on uh, access to rapid tests. You know, I had been working and, and trying to convince the administration starting last April to make investments in rapid tests because I could see the writing on the wall that we would have a need for this tool as one way to navigate ourselves through the pandemic and you know keep our economy open, keep our restaurants thriving, keep our, our kiddos in school and our teachers in the classroom. And uh, so I filed legislation related to rapid tests to get those into the hands of our of our families. And uh, we know that we really the, the administration really dragged their feet on moving in that direction, and it really had a tremendous impact. And again, caused frustration and confusion for so many residents across the Commonwealth. Now, you mentioned growing up in Lowell and having a diverse set of classmates and really kind of understanding what underserved populations are like. As we work to navigate the long-term lasting effects of the pandemic, what do you recommend that the next administration does to ensure equitable recovery for North Central Massachusetts residents and businesses, especially among some of those diverse and underserved populations? Yeah, it's a really important question. You know, I think one of the things that I would look to as the next lieutenant governor is informing working groups and councils is bringing people into the helping make decisions. You know, when we look at the advisory reopening board, there weren't any teachers, um, you know, as it relates to um, reopening and, and adjust recovery, making sure that we have small business owners at the table in truly meaningful ways. And that particularly, you know, small businesses owned by immigrant families, black, brown, and and women-owned businesses as well, uh, to make sure that we are uh, hitting on the needs that our small business and medium-sized businesses have throughout the Commonwealth, particularly in an area like North Central Mass, um, as you have highlighted. And when we talk about small businesses, one of the effects of the pandemic that all of our small businesses are facing are issues with the Unemployment Insurance Trust Fund. Uh, There were issues to this trust fund prior to the pandemic, but the pandemic really exacerbated this where you have businesses who retained full workforces and even they uh, faced massive increases during the pandemic. There were some ARPA funds that were appropriated to this, but it has not fixed the problem. So what do you propose as more of a long-term solution to this issue? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's going to continue to be a really big concern um, as the economy becomes more Uberized and uh, more and more gig workers because those folks are not paying into the unemployment system in the same way. So I think we have to have some real serious conversations and long term planning to make sure that that trust fund continues to remain, you know, that we're solving the problems that exist and that we're making sure that it's solvent moving forward. So I think we're going to have to look at some innovative tax structures. You know, the more that we move towards automation and we have a reduction in the number of jobs that are available in many of the retail spaces, um, that's going to have a long-term impact. We have this ballot question around Uber and Lyft that also has tremendous implications for what might happen um, in the future. So I think this is going to be an ongoing issue 
And, you know, my big focus, my parents were small business owners. So one of my big areas of focus is making sure that our small businesses can stay in operation. They are the backbones of our communities are the backbones of our downtowns in many places. Um, so it's just critical that we are uh, supporting our small businesses and and being able to get started and then get over some of the rough patches that are, you know, due to the p- pandemic or, you know, climate change. You know, that's another area that we have to take a real serious, uh, careful consideration and planning is what's going to be the potential impact of climate change on some of our small businesses. Um, And so there's a need to really be thoughtful in in that space. And I want to talk about climate change for a minute. Um, There's legislation passed last year where the Commonwealth will be working towards zero carbon emissions by 2050. Um, Do you believe this is the right approach to address climate change? I do. And I think all solutions need to really be put on the table. We need a truly comprehensive, multifaceted approach. Um, One of my concerns in this really particularly relates to folks in North Central uh, Massachusetts is, you know, thinking about energy justice. And, you know, we talk about climate justice and making sure that low income families and uh, low income earners have access to things like solar panels or opportunities to purchase, um, you know, hybrid or electric cars and doing some of the upgrades uh, to the housing that they live in. But we also have to be paying attention to you know, making sure that um, we're really modernizing our grid and that it can keep up with um, the the demand that we'll see on the need for electricity as we move to uh, decarbonizing our energy sources. So that's something that I've been thinking a lot about and talking with a lot of folks about is it's both climate justice, but it's also energy justice and making sure that working families have options um, and the ability to move in this direction. And that it's not just Um, you know, the wealthy suburban communities that can adopt some of these clean energy technologies, but they're really making them available to to everybody in the Commonwealth. We talk about some of those new technologies. I know there's concerns about some from some small business owners around affordability. You know, how can we go about this in a way that we're modernizing things, but at the same time, keeping it affordable? As you know, new technologies can be rather expensive. So how do we do this in a way that's affordable for small businesses and not a burden? Yeah, I think it's really important to make sure that the state is making investments and and providing incentives and financial support for us to make this uh, clean transition and that it's just uh, that it's just for the workers who currently work, uh, you know, laying pipes for the fossil fuel uh, industry and um, also for our small businesses to be able to adopt some of these uh, newer technologies, as you said, you know, as demand increases, hopefully, and in the supply increases, we'll hopefully see uh, some of the prices come down. But I think there is a role for um, us and the state government to, you know, be able to um, address some of the concerns around the high cost as it relates to adopting these new technologies. And you mentioned gig workers a little bit earlier on in the podcast. And one of the things we're seeing is the workforce in Massachusetts is certainly changing. Uh, Here in North Central Massachusetts, uh, businesses are seeing a very tight labor market as what they're calling the Great Resignation continues now into 2022. How would you recommend that the next administration, if you're elected, address this issue? Yeah, I think part of it is taking a look at what are the industries that um, people are are leaving from and what's driving people to leave those industries. Um, some of it is job satisfaction. Some of it is people realizing that they want to spend more time with, you know, family members at home. Uh, there's a lot of older adults who are leaving the workforce and just taking early retirement. 
Um, I know a lot of folks, um, you know, in various age groups who are really taking a, a step back and reflecting on what do they really want to be doing with their lives. So understanding what's, what's really driving um, folks to leave, uh, particularly in certain parts of, of the state like North Central Mass, and then finding solutions that address those, those issues. Um, you know, is it about pay? Is it about the benefits that are offered? Um, you know, it's really hard for our small businesses to be competitive with larger corporations when it comes to um, health insurance and other benefits. Are there opportunities for us to um, create some, some programs that allow uh, small businesses to be able to thrive and by, by addressing some of those other added expenses that can really, you know, make it difficult for a small business to know what their expenses will be from year to year, for example. Um, but I think we have to really truly understand what the underlying problems are. And, and that leads me to another big area of focus that I want to have as the next lieutenant governor is on our child care system. And just knowing that, yes, it's the great resignation, but it's also the she session. And so many women have left the workforce and are not able to return because of that childcare, those childcare issues just have not been uh, resolved in a way that they really need to be addressed. And when you look at childcare, what would you propose with the next administration? What do you think is the best way to, to tackle this very complex issue? Yeah, I mean, my hope is, is that we will see some childcare support through the Build Back Better. I'm not, uh, you know, uh, betting my life on, on that part. Uh, I think there's a lot of, Gridlock, as we know, down, you know, in Congress down in DC. Um, but I do think, you know, there's the Common Start legislation, which I do support, which will, um, you know, make the live through the promise of making sure that childcare is affordable and that it's high quality and that it's accessible. It's going to take some time to get there for sure. Um, we know we are way short on the number of childcare workers that we need in our state. That was the case even before the pandemic hit. We were around 25,000 workers short of what we needed in our childcare sector. And we know that COVID has really uh, blown that up even more. I think one of the other challenges, and this is where I also, um, you know, have some, uh, some frustrations with the current administration, what I hear from a lot of childcare providers is that they had to close their doors because they simply weren't getting uh, their economic relief fast enough from uh, the state government. And so some of those folks are never going to reopen. And that's a real, um, that's a real challenge for us uh, in, in getting those numbers of spots back uh, online that our working families are really relying upon. Here in North Central Mass, we often think that anything outside that 495 or even the 128 belt is somewhat forgotten. Now, you know this, you're in the Acton stretch. Um, when you look at North Central Massachusetts, our cities of Fitchburg, Leominster, and Garner, as well as other communities, still have not reached their full potential. Um, and they need more attention in terms of economic development. How will you assist the communities of North Central Massachusetts to achieve that full, true economic development potential if you become part of the next administration? Yeah, one of the things that I think is really important, I hear about this, you know, from Central to all the way to Western Mass, and then on the South Shore, just how those regions in particular feel uh, forgotten by Beacon Hill, and really in many ways are, except for their legislators and their senators who are doing phenomenal work on behalf of the residents on those regions. But I think what's really important is that we have a a truly state level, uh, statewide approach to economic development, and not just focus on just little, you know, regions in the Commonwealth. And what I mean by that is, you know, looking at are there ways that we can have back office uh, folks for the biofarm companies that are in Cambridge, 
we don't need back office folks. We have kind of proven here with COVID that we can work remotely. Why not have back office folks in different parts of the states? They can live locally where they are already in Lemonster and Fitchburg and Gardner, but work for, you know, one of the big biofarm companies that are located in Cambridge, because not everybody needs to be in Cambridge or Boston. And this whole notion that all the jobs need to continue to stay in those areas, I think is really dangerous from a long-term economic sustainability perspective for the Commonwealth. And so I would be looking to ways to repurpose um, the mill buildings and some of the existing infrastructure that exists in many of our cities and small towns in central and Western Mass and finding ways to connect those um, with existing organizations and businesses that already exist in the Commonwealth. If elected, how would you recommend your administration use transportation investments to improve access to North Central Massachusetts and other served regions in the state? Ongoing congestion on Route 2 continues to be an issue for employers and employees, and lack of access to reliable transportation options continues to be a major barrier to employment for many. Yeah, I believe that transportation is a public good. And so I'd love to see us make uh, greater investments in ways to incentivize and support uh, our, our workers and our students and our families from getting out of their cars and onto public transportation. It's why I formed two working groups um, around transportation just before COVID hit. Uh, some of your listeners and, and you may recall that um, in the House, we passed the revenue transportation revenue package and the transportation bond bill. And in both of those, I led with colleagues um, to address some of the issues related specifically to the Route 2 corridor, but also the state as a whole. So adopting and implementing support for more satellite parking, because so many of our commuter rail stations, people simply cannot get on the commuter rail because there's no parking available to them. And making, you know, making use of uh, parking lots that might be underutilized in other parts of the community by offering shuttle buses is one way that we've solved that problem here in the town of Acton. And it's something that did make it into the bond bill. Um, looking at rapid bus transit options um, in certain places and in, in regions throughout the Commonwealth, I think is another uh, solution to trying to alleviate some of the traffic congestion, but also again, providing opportunities and options for public transit. And then some simple things um, that don't take long-term investments, raising the platform so that people can get off and on the trains more quickly so that they are more reliable. Because one of the things that I've come to understand in some of the research I've done around this is that it takes, you know, if you have um, someone who takes a long time getting onto a train because the steps are so high, um, that slows things down from people being able to get on and off the trains a lot more quickly, which slows things down. And that includes, you know, access issues for people with disabilities or, families with strollers. Um, so it just, you know, some of those short term solutions, I think can go a long way to helping us uh, get there a little bit faster, but we definitely need to be greening our public transportation system, making more investments in micro transit in places that are not already connected to um, a commuter rail and also making investments in those regional transit authorities and making sure that they're um, uh, able to offer robust services to, to our families. Now, tourism is the third largest industry in the state, one of the hardest hit by the pandemic. This is also a priority industry for North Central Massachusetts, one that we're trying to grow, one that was identified in our One North Central Regional Economic Development Plan here at the Chamber. 
For some reason, despite its importance, Massachusetts still consistently falls near the bottom of the pack when compared to other states in terms of its investment in tourism marketing and support for the industry. How would you, if elected as lieutenant governor, advise the next governor to help the region and state capitalize on tourism and better compete with states around us who are also trying to grow their market share at our expense? Yeah, I mean, I'd love to learn more about that that plan that you just described. Um, so I'll take a look at that and look at it on, I'm assuming it's on the chamber's website. Um, but, you know, I, I grew up in a, the city of Lowell, which is the first national park um, in an urban center. And, and that was by design uh, to, to, again, you know, draw more tourism like you've talked about here. So finding those innovative ways um, to, to draw people. But I, I think, you know, when I think about tourism, I think about also arts and culture a little bit more broadly. And as Lieutenant Governor, one of the things that I'd love to do and, and committed to doing is bringing in um, different industry and innovative thinkers into uh, the different kinds of working groups that we want to form, right? So I talked a little bit about housing. Well, we don't need just housing experts uh, to sit on a, a working council or a working group uh, to address the issues of housing. Um, there are some you know, issues that relate to tourism that bump up against housing, right? When you think about short-term rentals and Airbnbs, um, you know, do people have a place to actually stay if they come visit your city or your town um, for tourism? And I know that that is an issue in some parts of the Commonwealth that they would be a hub of tourism, yet the locals and, and the state haven't figured out how to build um, you know, a hotel or places for people to actually stay overnight. So bringing in people who have um, a different perspective on how we think about tourism, arts and culture. And our artists are trained to speak to different audiences. So they have a very specific um, and unique perspective to share on problem solving because they're putting people at the center of the ways that they do their work and their thinking already. So I wanna bring artists and folks who are in the arts and culture and tourism industry in all of the working groups to have a hand in, how would this impact their industry? Um, and to be some of the um, folks who are bringing forth some unique and innovative perspectives and solutions to solve some of our most complex problems. And you mentioned a number of these different working groups. And I think one thing, sometimes people hear working groups and studies and they hear it's great that folks are talking mm. about this stuff, but how can you take the information from that working group and, and actually put it into legislation and get bipartisan support to have some of these bigger changes that are, that are really kind of sometimes outside the status quo past? Yeah, you know, I did that when I formed the Lowell Roundtable on Substance Abuse Prevention in the city of Lowell back in 2007. Within a year, we got a million dollars in state and federal uh, grants. And that was create, th those dollars were used to create on the ground programs and to pass policies to support young people. So I would take that similar approach to these working groups in the uh, corner office. And we we have models of this, uh, you know, with the opioid working group that I, I was formed under uh, Governor Patrick that uh, Lieutenant Governor Murray led on. And um, there's policy that came out of those. And to their credit, the Baker administration has continued in that vein, you know, implementing real legislation to address education and training for physicians and social workers around addiction and, and opioid use. Um, you know, making sure that um, there's more support for uh, access to Narcan and fentanyl testing strips. Um, so there are ways that these are not meant to be working groups that just look at each other and say, here's the, you know, 
they call it navel gazing, right? <laughs> uh, you know, not just like, oh, this would be a really great idea, but so it's not just a report that sits on a shelf, but that there really is action tied to it. Um, I, I firmly believe that, you know, a, a good report or a good study has to have action, meaningful action tied to it. And right now we are going to put you on the clock. If you had 60 seconds to convince me or one of the listeners why you should be your party's nominee for lieutenant governor for the September primary and then why you should be lieutenant governor in November, what would you say? I'm going to put you on the clock starting right now. As I said earlier, I grew up in the city of Lowell, and that really gave me a unique perspective in so many ways um, around the impacts of structural racism and intergenerational poverty. I was inspired to go give back to my community. I've been a public health social worker for the last 25 years, but I've also had that lived experience of knowing what it's like to be financially insecure and the stress and strain of worrying about can you make your bills at the end of the month. I've also seen on the other side as a legislator what it's like when our systems and our government is not working to support our working family. So I have both the personal experience as well as the professional experience. And as a single parent and as a sitting legislator, I finished my doctorate in public health. I went from being an unemployed single parent in 2008 to now a doctor of public health, a sitting legislator running to put the health, well-being, and dignity of every resident at the heart of decision-making so that we can make sure our state government is working for our working families. And Tammy, where can listeners go for more information on your campaign as a Democratic candidate for lieutenant governor? Yeah, TammyGovea.com, spelled T-A-M-I. Govea is G-O-U-V-E-I-A.com. I have all the vowels in my last name, so... If you're missing a vowel, then you're not spelling it right. And I look forward to meeting more folks and hearing from folks uh, on the campaign trail. This has been another election series episode of the Inside North Central Massachusetts podcast. I'd like to thank Rep. Dr. Tammy Govea for talking to us about her platform as a Democratic candidate in the race for lieutenant governor. The primary is scheduled for September 6th and the general election is slated for November 8th. Dr. Tammy Govea, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Travis. Really appreciate it. You've been listening to Inside North Central Massachusetts. This podcast is produced by the North Central Massachusetts Chamber of Commerce. For more information on this episode, links to other episodes, or if you have any questions, please visit northcentralmass.com.